Well, good evening. How are y'all doing tonight? Awesome. Doing very well. Thank you so much. Well, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 tonight, verses 13 through 21, and we're going to be talking about living a holy life. You know, the reality of living a holy life, uh, biblically, rests so much on what we do with our hope, where we place our hope, how we deal with our hope. Since the beginning of this letter, Peter has spoken a couple times about hope, uh, verse one, or chapter one, verse three. He said, we've been given new birth into a living hope. A living hope because it's grounded, founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter went on in the next handful of verses to speak of the hope we have of heaven and how that is an inheritance that is being kept for us there and even that our salvation, although we're saved here now on this earth during this time, that there is still a future full culmination of what all that means and that God is guarding us, protecting us, making sure we get there through his power and his grace. But we can't forget that the people Peter's writing this letter to, he called them spiritual exiles. He called them exiles when they were struggling. They had come to faith in Christ, um, and in their coming to Christ, they believed that his coming was very near. And most often, I think every generation that has heard that Christ's coming is near, we've expected it or hoped that it would come in our lifetime. And so they were expecting that, and yet time had passed for some a short time for some, a longer amount of time, and difficulties have come, and struggles have come, and challenges have come. And so their hope was starting to wane. Now Peter, however, could see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. He could see the promise on the horizon. I think the Holy Spirit just gave him a special understanding. And so in verses 3 through 12 of this letter, he's basically telling those who are struggling those Christians who are living in this world as exiles, knowing that this isn't our home, this isn't our final destination, he basically says in verses three through 12, lift your head up, stop looking down, stop being discouraged. You know, your future goal is real. Your salvation is real. Your hope is real because your hope is Jesus and he's alive. And so he's like, look, your salvation is secure. Don't worry, don't freak out about what's going on in your life because look, God planned to save you all the way back before time began. So he's not gonna like, oops, let you slip through his fingers now, right? He's got you, trust in him, he will complete it. And so I believe having kind of spiritually refreshed his readers in these first handful of verses, Peter now shifts his tone in his letter to, to really help the readers then and us now to, to put that hope into practice, right? To put that hope into practice. And that's what we're gonna be looking at tonight in these verses. Really, the, the call. The call to rest our hope completely on God's grace, right? We have hope in our salvation, we have hope in our future, we have the hope of heaven. But here and now today, where do we rest that hope? Where do we hang that hope, so to speak? To call, the call to rest that on God's grace. And then he gets into really two characteristics of, of those who are doing that, right? You know, am I resting my hope on God's grace? How do I know? What does that look like? And so he gets into two characteristics, and then he gives us three um, really encouraging motivations, to keep going when it, when it feels difficult to keep going. And especially when, when he's talking about look, leaving your hope, hanging your hope, resting your hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, 
We thank you so much, Lord, for your word. God, you really are the only source of hope in this world, God. You're, you're our hope. You're the hope. You're the only hope for every single human being. And God, some of us have, have received the promise of your forgiveness and received salvation, Lord, and, and now have that opportunity to, to, to have our hope in you, to rest that hope in you. And yet, God, as we're living here on this earth, going about our lives, trying to stand for you, trying to represent you rightly, trying to be lights on the hill, God, trying to be men and women who, who, who live and breathe the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share that through, through not just our words but how we live, God, life gets tough. Life gets difficult, especially in this season, Lord. There are some people that really struggle when they go into the holidays because of different reasons, Lord, different trials or traumas or difficulties in their life, God. And, and Lord, even believers sometimes deal with that lack of hope, that waning hope. So God, I just pray tonight you would encourage us, Lord, on, on what to do with our hope, how to hang our hope on you, and how that helps us to live a holy life, a life that pleases you, but ultimately a life that is a blessing to us and those around us, God. And so, Lord, speak to us tonight. We love you so much. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we pick it up in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. He goes, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So after, you know, telling them like, hey guys, hang on, lift your heads up, trust in your salvation, it's real, trust in the hope of heaven, God's going to get you there. He then says, therefore. Now this response that Peter is encouraging from the people is actually found right in the middle of that verse. And it's kind of the hinge phrase of this entire section. Peter has been building towards this point, like I said, since the very beginning of the letter. Starting out with saying, we've been giving new birth into a living hope. And so here he says, set your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you. Later on in verse 21, we'll look at as we close, he also says, your faith and your hope are in God. And so this opening verse here, verse 13, it's a call. It's a command, if you will, to, to all believers, to everyone who calls themselves a Christian, especially those that are struggling especially those finding themselves in difficult times, to set your hope completely, not partially, but completely, he says there on the future coming of Christ. There is something to be said about the reality and what it does to us when we're able to say, look, well, think about it. When you were in school, or when I was in school, I don't even know if they do it this way anymore, but you're like, I can't wait to get out of here. This is terrible. And you look at the clock, right? You're like, only 20 more minutes. And that hope, wow, that, 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 that got you through those 20 more minutes, right? Lunch is after this. I can't wait. But there's other situations in our lives when we know that the good is coming. It helps us persevere through what is now. And that's what he's talking about, the future coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back, people. He really is. Do you believe that? Of course we say yes. Do you live like you believe that? That is sometimes a different story for us. And all of us. As we go through the seasons of our life, sometimes we're like, yeah, we're just, we're just on fire and we're living like Jesus could come back any second. I'm ready for him. And then we go through times in our life where we're like, well, I hope he doesn't come back right now. 
because I don't think he'd be real pleased with how I'm living my life. If any of us are to do more than simply weight out the weight of our exile-like existence in this earth, right? To move past, to do more than just get by, to actually get into living an intentional, intentional, that's not even a real word, intentional engagement with the world we live in here, if we want to get past just trying to wait for the bell to ring, so to speak, but no, say no, like the time we're here, I, I want to have an effect. I want to glorify God. I want God pleased with the life I live here. If we want to do that and be able to have godly joy and godly peace while we're doing that, We have to become people who understand and experience what fully, completely placing our hope in our eternal future means. We have to internalize that. C.S. Lewis, he wrote, um, um, oh my gosh. Right, he wrote everything. Chronicles of Narnia, that's the one I was stuck on, right? I read a whole bunch of C.S. Lewis today. I can't believe I forgot all of his books. Yeah, okay. But he said this. He said, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old we all should be looking forward to that time when Jesus comes back that time we get to go be with him right and looking forward to that is meant to meant to bless us now as we persevere now the question is not can this be done can we can we hang our hope on the future coming of Christ because it's a truth the question is how do we do this how do we follow the example of those who first received this letter and read it and the example of those down through the ages who persevered looking forward to the coming of Christ how do we maintain our hope while living as exiles in this world and how do we know we're doing it what does it look like when we're doing that well this is what Peter gets into and the first characteristic of those who are living with their hope completely resting on the future coming of Christ, the first characteristic we see there right in the beginning of verse 13. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. The first characteristic of those who are, who are successfully, if you will, hanging their hope on the future coming of Christ and resting in that and letting that have all the effect that it's meant to have on their life, the first characteristic is that they have a healthy, disciplined mind. All right, they have right thinking about truth. The New King James Version says this on this verse, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Now, that's one of the reasons why I personally teach out of the Christian Standard Bible. Okay, how many times in our daily life do you hear anybody say, gird up the loins of your mind? Right, what does that even mean, right? Um, well, what it means is how the CSB translates it. That's one of the reasons I like the CSB. Um, but the girding up concept is, is back in ancient times, uh, uh, people would you know, wear robes and garments, and they would have like an inner garment, an outer garment, and an overgarment. And so you'd have these robes going all the way down to their feet. Well, if you've ever tried to run in robes, and ladies, I've heard that if you're wearing long dresses, it's, it's equally as difficult. To, if you have to run now, it's hard, right? There's all this clothing in the way, right? If you have to get into action, if you have to spring into action, it's hard when you have clothing draped all the way down to your feet. And so in ancient times, what what they would do is they would gather up all the clothing and they would stuff it into their waist belt or tie it around their waist. And so they would gird up 
their loins. Okay, that's the concept here. So the concept is, 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 is preparing for, for running or fast walking or other strenuous activity, and that's why the CSB translates it this way. Get your minds ready for action. Okay, that's what the concept is. It's another way of saying pull your thoughts together. Pull your thoughts together. So the idea here and the first characteristic, you know, if you're successfully truly hanging your hope completely on the future coming of Christ, on the grace of God, then you're going to be a person who's focusing on, thinking about, dwelling on, meditating on, keeping in the center of all your decision-making the return of Christ. The fact that it could happen any second. That'll always be in the forefront of, of your thinking as you decide what to do, how to live, where to go, how to behave, how to speak. Now, it's something that I get. I understand how difficult it is to keep that always at the forefront of your mind, to keep that in that place of urgency because, well, after all, it's been 2,000 years, right? And he hasn't come back yet. Well, I've been a Christian for X amount of years and he hasn't come back yet. And so it can be difficult to keep this at the forefront of our thinking, but we're called to do it. We're called to do it, just to, to keep our minds ready for action and to be sober-minded. Thinking in this way helps us escape the, the worldly things that would otherwise cloud our minds, the worldly things that would pollute our minds, things that would hinder our spiritual walk, to hinder walking in holiness, as we're going to see in a second. And so focusing on the return of Christ, keeping that something that is just always on the forefront of it could be right now, it could be right now, it could be right now. It helps us to live an, an obedient, holy life that glorifies God. And again, it's just that simple thing. You know, if God came back right this second and found me doing whatever I'm doing in that second, would he be like, well done, good and faithful servant? And for many of us, when we have premeditated sin we're involved in, of course, we're like, oh, I don't want him to come back finding me doing that. But then there's other times and situations where it's just, we're, 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 we're ceasing to live holy because we're, we're backing off believing that he could come back right now. So it doesn't matter if I'm really being obedient and it doesn't matter if I'm really, you know, sticking to my disciplines and stuff because after all, ah, uh, and then we find ourselves in difficult times and we've strayed away from our hope, which is Jesus Christ. We find ourselves that much more panicked, that much more stressed out, that much more worried. So a Christian who is looking for the coming return of Christ, the glory of God being revealed, really has a greater motivation for obedience. And has a greater motion, uh, motivation for obedience than a, than a believer who ignores or doesn't think about God's return at all. Now, we should not only have a focused, disciplined mind, and that's where he says just, just have a mind ready for action, right? Ready, ready to, to, to be doing what God wants, ready to, to obey God, ready to, to you know, do and, 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 and be who God's calling us to be. But we also are to have what's called a sober mind. That means a calm mind, a steady mind, a controlled mind, or a mind that is ready to weigh matters. That means a mind that is ready to make good decisions. A mind that is ready to make good decisions between right and wrong. You know, I can tell you a bazillion stories of my pre-Christian life and how the lack of a sober mind leads to really poor decision-making. Really poor decision-making. And some of you have experienced that in your lives, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or whatever that, that polluted your mind. And people don't tend to make good decisions when they're not sober-minded. They don't tend to think clearly. 
And so having a, a, a sober mind is important. Now, that doesn't mean God can't work through people who have a polluted mind, right? You know, Pastor Gary's testimony. You know, when he was a kid, he, he went to a, a, um, a Sunday school class, and the teacher had all the kids memorize Psalm 23 and gave them a prize, and he memorized it, and that was the first and only time he ever went to church, and then years later, he's stoned out of his mind on PCP, sitting at a party, and people start spouting off Bible verses, which I don't know why stoned people like to quote the Bible, but it happens. I had some of the deepest theological conversation I've ever had <laughs> before I was even a Christian at parties. We never came to any good conclusions, but Pastor Gary was there at this party, and someone's did it, and Psalms 23 comes to his mind. And he goes, I got one, and he recites Psalms 23, and by the time he's done reciting Psalms 23, he's completely sober. Grabs Denise's hand and says, we're leaving, we don't need to be here. And just like that. I mean, God could work through those things, but generally, if we're going, hey, I'm walking with the Lord, and I'm a believer, and I'm going to voluntarily go and pollute my mind and corrupt my mind, we create a situation where it's tough for us to really think soberly about right and wrong. Now, the opposite of a person who has a healthy mind ready for action and a sober mind is a believer who lives as if Christ isn't coming back or won't come back at the, at the moment or at any moment. This is a believer who lives their life for this life instead of the next. This is a believer who's only thinking of now instead of the future. This is the person who thinks, you know, um, everything I'm doing today, investing in today, um, regardless of whether it glorifies God or not, they forget that it's all going to burn up one day. The believer who doesn't have the sober mind, who doesn't have the healthy disciplined mind, has a polluted mind that just keeps on making the wrong decisions about what, about how, about when, about all of it when it comes to living because their focus is on the here and now alone. They think now is the only time frame that matters. And they end up tossed to and fro, the Bible says, tossed emotionally, tossed mentally, just wrecked over and over again because they have no joy, they have no peace, they have no hope, let alone hope rested on the truth that Jesus is who he says he is and he's returning one day for his people. And so the first mark of hope, of a hope that is completely set on God's grace is a healthy, disciplined mind ready for his return. The second mark we see in verse 14, it's holy conduct. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who, is, who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. So when we live as obedient children, when we live with lives that are conformed to God's holiness, we demonstrate that our hope truly is founded upon him, his grace, the truth of Jesus, and the fact that he's coming back. When you live holy, it's proof that, that, that that's taking place in your life. I point that out because I've known Christians in my years of walking with the Lord who aren't at all living in obedience in any way, shape, or form. And yet they think, no, I'm, I'm holy. I'm living a good life. My life glorifies God. And I'm like, how? In what way? In what manner? Oh, well, you know what? I, I read my Bible a couple times last week, and, you know, I said God bless you to one person at the grocery store, so, so I'm holy. And that's so far from the truth. When we live conformed to the desires of our former fallen, sinful ignorance, we demonstrate to the world and we demonstrate to God that we either don't have or place far too little value on the grace 
that we have now and the grace that will be coming to us when Jesus returns. By wallowing in the filth of earthly pleasure, we communicate. We declare that we, in effect, despise what's coming. Don't want what's coming, that we prefer what this world has to offer us instead. Now, holy living and holy conduct and and this whole concept of Christian living becomes a subject matter for the rest of Peter's letter from here forward. He's going to be dealing with this in a whole bunch of different ways, and one could even argue that his entire letter is about what it looks like when when, when God's people's hope is completely resting on God's grace. The whole rest of the letter is what it looks like in a life whose hope is resting on God's grace and the truth that Jesus is coming back. Living holy lives is, is a mark that we're a part of God's family. You see, right there in that verse, he calls us obedient children. Children. Verse 17, he calls God Father. And we know that God is our Father. Being saved, biblically, means that, that God lives within us and empowers us to do, to do what is impossible to do on our own. That's a part of our salvation. And so, if God isn't your Father then you will find that living a holy life is pretty much impossible. You might live a life that says, you know, I'm good compared to this person. You know, and people like to do that when you're evangelizing or sharing your faith with them, right? You start to talk about the truth of the Ten Commandments, and you go, oh, you're a good person. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever looked on a man or a woman with lust? Have you ever coveted? You know, and you start going through it. And inevitably, every single time, they're like, yeah, but I'm not. I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And And they'll always defer or point to somebody else to make themselves feel justified, to make themselves feel better. But the truth is, is they're not, and they can't live a holy life. The Bible is very clear. Without God in our lives, we are slaves to sin, and he's going to talk about that in a little bit. We're slaves to sin. We obey sin. We obey our flesh. We, we, we pursue after pleasures and whatever makes us feel good, no matter how wrong it is, and we can't stop. That is the truth. We simply do not possess the power to live a holy life from our own DNA. What he's saying here is that, that holy conduct is a fruit of being a part of God's family. Holy conduct is a fruit of being a part of his family. That's why in verse 18 he says, you were redeemed from your empty way of life that you inherited from your ancestors. And we'll get to that verse here in a moment. But understanding that that God is our father, that we are his children, that we are members of his family, if he truly is in your life, means that, that you have been given the ability to live a holy life. That you can live a holy life. And I point that out because... Myself, I've said this at times in my life, and I'm thankful <coughs> that I've largely grown past this, but I've met other people in my life that are like, I'm struggling with the sin. I'm, I'm a believer. I'm saved. I'm struggling with the sin, and I can't stop. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The God who created the universe, created everything, lives outside of time, dwells within you, and you're saying you can't? When somebody says, I can't stop, what they're saying is, I don't want to. What they're really saying is, I don't want to try hard enough. What they're really saying is, you know what, I will go this far to stop but no further, and I've reached that point and I'm still doing it, so I can't. 
It's a lie. Every believer that has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them has the power to stop. Now, we cling to God and we stop, and then we let go and we fall, and we cling to God and we stop and we let go and we fall. And this is just <laughs> the, the existence that we have here, and I believe that's the reality that Paul was talking about in Romans, right? Why do I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do, right? Paul the Apostle dealt with this, so we're in good company. But to believe the lie that you can't stop doing something, I think is from the pit of hell. Because if you believe that lie, then you embrace that you will forever be in slavery to whatever that thing is that is controlling you. And that's simply not the reality for God's children. We are free. We just need to live in that freedom and learn how to walk in that freedom here in this life. Now, is that saying that we're going to ever reach a point here on this earth where we're completely sin-free and never done anything wrong again? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But the point is, is are we living with, with a mindset to we are free from sin, we're capable of saying no to sin, we just need to keep clinging to God, and then when we fall, we keep saying, God, forgive me, we keep throwing our, 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 ourselves on his mercy and crying out for his grace. Are we doing that, or are we justifying our disobedience? Because they're two very different things. But even so, Sometimes it's simply hard to keep going. Sometimes we might look at our lives and we're like, you know what, my, my mind is clear, I'm being sober-minded, you know, I'm thinking clearly, I'm focusing on the Lord, I'm excited and eager for his return, you know, it's at the forefront of my decision-making, I'm ready, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm reaching out and, and walking towards him and I've cast my hope completely on the grace and I'm just, I just can't wait for him to come back and I'm ready for that. And I know that I'm his kid, and I'm doing everything I can to be obedient and trusting in him and all of that stuff. But sometimes it's still difficult. So Peter goes on in verse 15 to start giving us three motivations to keep going when it's tough. Three motivations to get up and move if you haven't been, and three motivations to keep on if you're struggling. And they're really three truths to hang on to, these three truths that give us strength to keep living a holy life no matter how bad it gets or how tough it gets. Look at verse 15. He says, but as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. And then verse 16, he goes, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now that last part in verse 16, Peter is, is quoting Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, and he's using this to motivate us toward holiness. In, in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, what was happening there is God had commanded his people you are commanded to be separate from the world, right? You're not to be in part of the world like the world. You're to be separate from the world. They were to be distinctly different. They were to act differently than the unbelieving nations. And that's the same for the church today. And the reason was is that they were God's people. God's like, you're my people. Therefore, you should be different than the people who aren't my people. Pretty simple logic there. And it's the same reality today. We are God's people. Those of us that call ourselves Christians, we are God's people. And so our very nature has been changed by God. Our very character has been changed by God. And so then, therefore, we should live like it. But so often we don't. And I don't know about you, but those times in my life where I've said, you know what? 
I'm going to go do what I used to do. I'm going to go be who I used to be. It doesn't feel natural anymore, does it? It doesn't quite have the same thrill it used to have. It doesn't quite have the same momentary pleasure as it used to have. It's like, this feels wrong. This feels gross. Why am I going back to this? And it's because you've been a changed person. Children of God ought to be motivated in living holy lives simply by the desire to reflect God's character to the world around us. That's a work the Holy Spirit does in and through us. And I'm so thankful for that. I pray all the time, God, change my heart. God, give me a heart that is like your heart. God, give me eyes that see the world the way you see it, to see people the way you see them. God, give me the patience you have with me so that I can demonstrate that to those around me. God, I want to I have your character traits in my life and express those to those that don't know you so that they might come to know you the way I do. And we as God's children, we really need to be serious about sin and holy living. We have to take it seriously. And I think we, we go through seasons in our lives where we do take it very seriously, and then we have other seasons where we don't. And we think it's no big deal. You know, John chapter 17, verse 11, God is called our Holy Father. He's holy. John 17, 25, God is called our Righteous Father. You see, sometimes we need to stop and reflect and remember that God will not compromise with sin. He will not compromise with sin. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, he is forgiving. Yes, he is gracious. But he is also a loving disciplinarian. He is a loving father who cannot permit or condone his children living in sin. After all, it was sin that sent God's son to the cross. Don't for a second think God the Father ever looks at our sin and goes, well, okay, it's all right. His son died for it. And so if we call God our Father, there should be a motivation within us to reflect his nature. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly. It doesn't mean we're right on it every moment of every day, but there should be an intention, a motivation within us. There are some people that say, I'm a Christian, and there is no desire of any kind in them whatsoever at any point to reflect God's nature. To that person, I say, "Hmm, well, I can't judge your heart, but (laughs) I'm not sure you really know the Lord. Because those who know the Lord, I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, although they're not perfect, although they stumble and fall, they still have an intention and a desire to honor and glorify God with their life. And so verse 17, he says, If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. So if God being holy isn't enough to move us into being holy and living holy, maybe his impartial judgment will be enough to motivate you. You see, this judgment he's talking about here, if you appeal to the Father, that means if you claim him, call out to him, you say, he's my dad, know this, he judges impartially according to each one's work. And if you call out to him, you should conduct yourselves in reverence while you're here living as an exile on this earth. 
The judgment he's referring to here, incidentally, is not a judgment unto salvation. This isn't a judgment of whether you're saved or not saved. This is not a proof text where, oh, look, God will send believers to hell. They can lose their salvation. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. When any one of us trusted in Christ, put our faith in Christ, God forgave our sins. He declared us righteous in Christ. And so our sins have already been judged on the cross and and they cannot be held against us. They have been dealt with permanently and forever. Praise God, hallelujah, right? However, 1 Peter 2.24, not however, this is in support of what I just said. 1 Peter 2.24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. We don't live a life now trying to say, God, I need to do things so you don't smite me. That's not the relationship we're talking about here in the holy living. Hebrews 10.10 says, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Praise God, we are saved if you put your faith in Jesus. It is done. He said it is finished. You're saved. Your salvation is secure. The salvation issue has been resolved. If you put your faith in Jesus, God the Son, his death on the cross for your sins, and his resurrection from the dead, you're saved finally and forever. However, when the Lord returns, the Bible does talk about a time of judgment for the believers, and it calls it the judgment seat of Christ. You can read about this in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The judgment seat of Christ, where every believer will we'll, we'll, we'll give an account for how they lived on this earth. Every believer, every single one of God's kids will give an account for how they lived on this earth. And that's what he says there when it says that it will be judged according to each one's work. God will spend time with each one of us and go, okay, you were my child, you had my word, you went to church, you read devotionals, How did you live? What did you do with what I've given you? How did you live the truth I gave you? What did you do with the gifts I've given you and the talents that that I gave you to, to, to serve me and my people? What did you do with the gospel that I entrusted to you? And in that judgment seat of Christ, each believer will receive an appropriate reward for how they lived for the Lord. It's not a judgment of negative. It's not a, let me find out what you did bad so I could punch you in the face. It's let me find out what you did good so I could reward you for that. And it's called a judgment. It's kind of like a family judgment, if you will. It's the father dealing with his beloved children, looking into our lives to find what is good. And and he'll look at everything. He's going to look at how we spent the time he gave us. He's going to look at how he spent the resources he gave us. He's going to search our motive in all things. He's going to search our, our, our intention in all things. He's going to examine our hearts in every way. Now, this doesn't mean that it's like, oh, no, I, I could never uh, buy a new car because God's going to judge me for that. That's not what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with, with having a car, having a house, having clothes on your back, having things. That's not my point. The point is, is what did you do with the life God gave you? Did you live it in a way that honored him and glorified his name? Or did you squander what he gave him on your own pleasures? 
And there's a difference between saying, I got to put clothes on my back and, you know, I'm going to ignore the starving guy on the street because I want to buy a $10,000 purse. Now, again, there's those people who God has blessed with resources where a $10,000 purse, $10, purse is nothing. And if they buy one, they're fine with that. But my point is, how are you living the life God has given you? What are you doing with what's God given you, what, what God has given you? Because he's going to ask. And he's impartial in this judgment. Not any one of us is going to get a pass. Billy Graham is not going to be judged by a different standard than Pastor Nathan. We're going to be all judged by the same standard. He's impartial. He's not going to be like, oh, this is my golden child. Sure, come on in, bro. Wink, wink, pass, pass. Oh, you know what? You were the kid I didn't like. I'm really coming down on you. Right? That would be me. But he's, he's like, he, it's impartial. It's impartial. We're all going to be held to God's standard, not our own. And so when we're asking ourselves, am I living a life that, that is honoring God, is holy to God? Don't use any standard but God's. Don't fall into the trap of saying, you know what? Well, I know I'm being disobedient in this, but I'm not as bad as that person. Therefore, I'm going to continue in that disobedience. Don't do that. Because you're only affecting your own future reward. We will each be evaluated, so make each day count in your decisions to be obedient and live a holy life before the Lord. Now, it's interesting, he said, during your time living as strangers. Right? Believers, stop trying to fit in with this world. This isn't our home. Stop trying to be like this world. This isn't our home. Stop trying to, to make sure that, that, the, that this world system and the people of this world love you and think you're great at the expense of telling them the truth. Stop it. We're to be separated. We're to be sanctified. We're to be living holy, different from this world. Life is way too short to waste in disobedience and sin. And so let's choose to be holy. The fact that our Father lovingly disciplines his children today and will judge our works in the future should cultivate an attitude of godly fear. <laughs> okay? Godly fear. It's not the cringing type of fear of a slave before a master who is beat and abused. It's not that type of fear, which incidentally, that slave-master relationship is the relationship between us and sin, and we'll address that in the next verse. But godly fear is a loving reverence and a loving respect. The loving respect of a child towards their father. That attitude of I, I love that individual and I respect them and their authority and, their, and who they are. And, and so I don't want to displease them and I don't want to disappoint them. And, and, and it's that type of concept. But if God's character doesn't motivate us to live holy, and God's impartial judgment won't do it, maybe a reflection on the cost and the effect of our salvation will. Look at verse 18. It says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. You know, the great love of God, I think, is the highest motive for holy living. And some of us struggle with that, right? 
Some of us have grown up in lives where it's like, I don't know what being loved is like. I don't understand what being loved is. And so I, I, I wrestle with this concept of God loving me and what that, what that really means. Well, we have a picture there of what that love was. You see, it was love that prompted God the Father to give God the Son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for your sin. It was his precious, sinless, spotless blood that secured your salvation. It was Jesus dying in your place. It was him being sacrificed instead of you. It was him going to the, to the, to the very end, suffering the death penalty that you deserve for breaking God's law. That's a demonstration of his love. And here, Peter is reminding us of our salvation experience a reminder that I think we all regularly need. So the first thing he reminds us of is what we were. Before Christ, we were enslaved people who needed to be set free. He says, for you know that you were redeemed. That word redeemed carried special meaning to the readers in the first century Roman Empire. You see, because during the early church, back during the Roman Empire, it's estimated that at this time there was possibly over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, as the church started to grow, many of these slaves had become Christians and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and had become, uh, started fellowshipping in the local home fellowships and the local churches that were developing. Now, in those times, a slave could purchase his own freedom if he was able to save up enough money to do so, but often the amount was just ridiculous. Or a slave's master could sell them to someone else who would pay their price. And then that person could set them free. So this concept of being redeemed, purchased, was a very real concept to many people in the early church. It was a regular part of their society, a regular part of their lives. Every single one of us today who call ourselves Christians, the reality is the Bible says we were once enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to sin. Now, although the concepts of slavery um, aren't so real in our world today here in Western culture, when we hear about slavery, we think of early American culture in the South. We could think of other places around the world. And there's places today where, where abject, brutal, abusive slavery still happens. One of the most prominent ways it happens in our world today is through sex trafficking. Where young people, most of them women, are, are taken, kidnapped, and forced into servitude to do horrible things. And they can't get out, and they can't escape, and they're controlled, and they're drugged, and they're... And, 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 it, ha it exists today. There is slavery today in the world. But for many of us, that concept of, of being enslaved to something else doesn't really land. We might think, oh yeah, I know what slavery is like, I have to go to work. Not even close, right? Not even close. And so we have to think about, meditate on the concept that I was enslaved to sin. Sin was my master. I had no capability of decision-making when it came to whether or not to serve sin. Moses urged Israel to never forget that they had been slaves in Egypt. And then you go back in the Old Testament, you read that there was a whole generation that died in the wilderness that forgot all about their bondage in Egypt. 
so much so that they're like, hey, can we go back there? It was better than this. Having no clue, no idea how horrible those conditions were. And so he says, you were redeemed. You were purchased and set free from that empty way of life. When he says empty way of life there, this is who we were before Christ. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry, and that's just a short list. People engaged in such behavior are engaged in that often because they're empty. They're empty. He calls it an empty way of life. That they're empty and hopeless and without joy. And they might say, no, I do these things because I enjoy it. But if they ever get into a place where they're actually talking to somebody and they actually start to dig deep into, why are you doing these horrible things? You often find out that there's some trauma in their early life, trauma in their childhood. All kinds of traumas and and difficulties that have led them to to lead this life that is destructive and, and breaking them apart. Even though they say, no, I do it because I choose to, I enjoy it. So they pursue whatever gives them the slightest momentary sense of pleasure only to have it fade almost immediately and have to go out and do it again and again, finding themselves enslaved to it. And so Peter says, this is who you were. But then he reminds us of what Christ did. It says he shed his precious blood. His precious blood was shed to purchase us out of slavery and to set us free forever. Like I said, a slave can be freed with the payment of money in those days. But there is no amount of money in the entire creation that can set a lost sinner free from the penalty of death that is due upon them for their sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can redeem us. And so in referring to Jesus as an unblemished, spotless lamb, Peter is reminding us of a very important teaching in Scripture. A very important theological doctrine. It's called the doctrine of substitution. The concept of an innocent victim giving their life for the guilty. This doctrine started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where God killed animals that he might clothe Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis twenty-two thirteen, a ram was slaughtered for Isaac. Exodus 12, a Passover lamb was slain for each Jewish household. In Isaiah 53, the Messiah was presented as, as an innocent lamb. And then back in Genesis 22, when Abraham's son Isaac asked, where is the lamb? John the Baptist answered it when he pointed to Jesus in John 1.29 and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, according to Revelation 5, in heaven the angels sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Verse 20, in closing, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And that's just Peter again making it very clear that Christ's death, God's plan of salvation from you, was no accident. God planned it before time began. And so when you and I meditate on focus on, pull our thoughts together towards the sacrifice of Christ for us. Pull our thoughts together and, 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 and keep at the forefront of our thinking that he's coming soon. We should want to obey God and live holy lives to his glory. 
Peter wants us to do one thing to start the process, set our hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. Rest your hope there. He saved you. He's coming back for you. Doesn't matter how bad life gets. He saved you. He's coming back for you. It doesn't matter how difficult the circumstance is. He saved you. He's coming back for you. Hope in that. And we know that we're doing that. When we can look at ourselves and say, I have a healthy, disciplined, sober mind, and I'm living a holy life. But when the time comes and the pressures mount and the difficulties rise up and it makes it difficult to persevere in living that holy life, hold on to these truths that God's character demands that we live that holy life. That we should want to reflect his character as his children and God himself empowers us to do it. That God's impartial judgment warns us to live a holy life and Christ's sacrifice so deserves us living a holy life. So Christian, if you've been taking the call to holiness lightly, just stop playing around. It's my personal belief that if, if, if every believer just stopped playing around with disobedience and we all just got on our knees in prayer and fasted and took deadly serious how serious sin is to the Lord and, and, and did everything we can to cling to him and to live holy and to pursue him and to pursue righteousness and to stand for Christ. Our world would change. It really would. And that's why I've said revival starts in our own hearts and our own homes because we start there, we change everything around us. And I believe God wants to do that work and I believe he is doing that work. And I pray that every single one of us that call ourselves believers are, are on that journey. There's too much at stake to mess around with our obedience, to mess around with our witness, to mess around with our example in this world. We're called to holiness. We're called to be lights on a hill and we're equipped by God himself dwelling within us the Holy Spirit to do so. And so I believe in our world today and our culture today and where things are going politically and all this stuff, I just think it's simply time for God's people to stop quivering in fear, to stop losing hope, and to stop compromising faith, and to start standing for Christ and righteousness like we never have before. And we can do it because it's God within us empowering us to do so. To live holy, uncompromised lives that glorify his name in reverence and respect for who he is, proclaiming the faith and hope that we have in God, all the while looking forward eagerly to his soon return. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. God, we know you're coming back soon. We believe that. But Lord, even if you don't return in our lifetime, that doesn't change anything. We're still called to live as separated people in this world. To live as your children obediently to you differently than the rest of the world around us. And so God, as we rest our hope completely on your grace, completely on the promise of your return, may we cling to you in everything, God, to stop polluting ourselves with the things of this world, God. May we be able to look at those things 
and be encouraged by the work you're doing through us to make us holy, to help us to live holy as your kids. God, we know that you are holy, and so therefore, God, move in our hearts to want to be just like you, our dad. God, we know that you're going you're gonna to judge our lives, not to salvation, God. We're your kids. We're going to heaven, but to the rewards of forever that is after this life that is but a vapor, God. And so help us, God, to, to be diligent in living obedient to you. But God, I think even most importantly, may you move in our hearts and cultivate a love in our lives, God. A love for you that is expressed in just a great desire to show our gratitude and appreciation for the, for the price you paid for us. That you died on the cross for our sins, Lord, and that we would live a life that says, thank you, God, so much for that. But Lord, through it all, we can't do it on our own, and so we ask you to work in and through us, God. Thank you so much. Use our lives, God, to glorify your name. Start in our own hearts and then through our homes and our neighborhoods and our churches and workplaces, God, and revive your people. Revive this nation. Revive this world. God, we want to see you glorified. We give ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to you and say, God, do your work. We desire to be holy people. Help us to be holy people. We love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, guys. Let's worship.